Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 8. Acts, chapter 8, is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. In just a minute, I'm going to start reading. I'm going to read from the first, the second half of verse 1. Your Bible might have the paragraph marked all the way through the end of the story that concludes in Acts 8, 25. Uh, While you're turning there, I will mention this morning a special guest who's with us today. We have a lot of special guests here today because of the holiday weekend, but uh, I have told you in the past about how uh, God significantly used my pastor when I was growing up uh, in thinking about ministry. When I was in seventh grade, he asked me to serve in Awana at my home church, and that's what pointed me in, in this direction that I am. Uh, Pastor Rennie, his name was Matt Rennie, he passed away a few years ago, but his wife is here this morning with us and uh, visiting Lancaster for the weekend. Now, I appreciate her being here. It's important for you to know that she's here because she lived in the parsonage from the time I was about three until uh, I was in high school. If you want any dirt on me, she knows it, I'm sure. You can ask her about that. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, actually the second half of verse 1. This is what scripture says. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the power of the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. 
For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now, this has not been a normal week for you, I imagine. Uh, you probably have been feasting and shopping and uh, probably had a day or two off. And if you haven't had a day or two off, you've been at work trying to make up for all the other slobs who are not working this week. Uh, you've eaten too many calories. Your, your, work, your sleep schedule is off. You haven't been working as, as much or uh, you've been doing different kinds of work. So it puts you a little off, maybe a little on edge. Let me push you a little further this morning. I want to push you a little further this morning by talking about uh, a topic that makes us both angry and sad and that is very divisive. Let's think together for just a moment this morning about what happened this week in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, Wrapped in all we know and all we don't know about what happened that night so many months ago, one thing is clear, isn't it, this week? Our nation is still very deeply divided, and none of those divisions have been helped by people who want to exploit what happened for their own ends. Uh, Russell Moore, who is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, has written about this, and he made an interesting observation. He said that one of the things that makes talking about Ferguson, Missouri, difficult is that white Americans tend to look at the microscopic details. We tend to look at the specific events, the, the legal questions, those very important questions, questions about the order of events in specific cases that will be decided in courts of law. That's an important angle to have. That's the, the tendency that we have. He said, on the other hand, African Americans tend to look at this issue from a wider angle and think about patterns. And they think about the long list of names and the pictures of men, young men who have been killed after confrontations with authorities. You have a lens through which you have looked at these events. That lens is shaped by the uh, experiences in life you've had. It's shaped by the news that you receive. It's shaped by the things that you read and things that you see. No one, no one is helped by the phrase, that's just the way they are. No one's helped by that phrase, whether the they in that sentence is African Americans or police officers. No one is helped by saying that's just the way they are. Um, I just read a passage that should help us think about this uh, event. This is the story of how the gospel begins to move beyond the first group of Jewish believers to Samaritans and Gentiles. In fact, in chapter 8, Philip takes the gospel to the Samaritans and then to an Ethiopian. This is the good news. Jesus uh, intended uh, for us, this is the good news that is crossing ethnic and racial boundaries. That's always what was part of God's plan. In fact, Jesus commanded us. He commanded his first followers to cross racial and ethnic boundaries in taking the good news of him. 
You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Now, one of the purposes of the book of Acts is, is it is here to teach us about a church, uh, what type of church successfully or faithfully rather fulfills her mission to represent Christ. If we want to do what Jesus has told us to do, what must be true about us? And so far we've uncovered a number of things. On the one hand, the Bible, the book of Acts tells us that we need to have an unshakable commitment to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Haven't we seen that in the book of Acts? Over and over again, Peter says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. And Stephen looked into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus at his right hand. There's this, this groundswell in the book of Acts, this delight in the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. And that un, un, unshakable commitment manifests itself in indomitable courage. Courage in the face of persecution. Persecution happens in the early chapters. It's going to happen over and over again uh, in the book of Acts. Seeing Jesus, knowing that Jesus is the exalted Lord, moves the people out courageously. And third, we've spent some time talking about the community, this gospel-shaped community that is the church. The, the, news, the good news about Jesus changed the way they lived and related to one another. They cared for widows. They shared their homes. They shared their meals. They prayed for one another. This was a group that was formed uh, in, in, purely, in a way that cannot be explained naturally, in natural human terms. Whenever we stand and we read our church covenant as a congregation, we are reading about our intention that the gospel would shape our community. It's the goal. It's one of the reasons that we read it, to remind ourselves about the call that we have to live in this sort of community. And now in Acts chapter 8, we see this community expanding, and it's crossing racial and ethnic boundaries. Uh, this is a dense passage that I just read. Uh, we, we can't look at all of the details that are here. Um, but what I want you to see this morning is I want you to notice two major emphases in the text. First, Luke focuses our attention on the power of the good news about Jesus Christ. And then he's going to focus our attention on the goodness of the good news about Jesus Christ. Those are the things that we're going to see as we go through this story. The power of this message that Jesus is the crucified, buried, risen, ascended Lord, and the goodness of that message. Now, let's first think about the power of it, and as we do so, we have to go back to Samaria. Um, the text tells us how we're going to get from Jerusalem, where we've been for the first seven chapters, to Samaria, and the way we're going to get there is through persecution. John Stott points out that in Acts chapter 8, there's a chain of events that happens. Stephen is martyred, the, the, the persecution starts, the church is dispersed, and as they go, they evangelize. So martyrdom, persecution, dispersion, evangelism. That's how the, the story unfolds in these first few chapters, the first few verses. And, 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 and Acts chapter 8 verse uh, 3 tells us about the character of this persecution. It was brutal. It was led by a man whose name was Saul. He was raging against the church. In fact, the text says he wanted to destroy the church. And he was totally indiscriminate in his persecution. The ver uh, verse uh, 3 says, 
He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. He didn't care who you were. He wanted to destroy you if you were a follower of Jesus. Now, I I pointed out, I wonder if you remember, it's interesting in verse 3, Luke says, both men and women. I pointed this out for the first time when we were going through Acts chapter uh, uh, 5 in verse uh, 14, I believe it is. Luke there talks about how many people in Jerusalem believed both men and women. He does the same thing in verse 13. Nope, verse 12. At the end there, he says, they were baptized, both men and women. Luke wrote his book. This is a particular interest of his. And one of his emphases in the gospel and in this book of Acts is to teach us and show us how Christianity was different than other ancient religions in that men and women could both function as fully functioning members of the body of Christ. Men and women were being saved. Men and women were in the congregation. Men and women were being persecuted together. After persecution comes dispersion, dispersion and then evangelism, which is the point in verse four. They preach the word wherever they went. Philip went to Samaria. Now, keep your finger in Acts chapter eight and turn with me over just one page or two to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Acts eleven nineteen. Look what Luke writes here. He comes back to this moment in time. Acts 11, verse 19 Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, ah, we we go back, same story. Philip goes to Samaria. Some, others, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So persecution, uh, martyrdom, persecution, dispersion, and then evangelism. The gospel's crossing boundaries, just like Jesus told us to, just like Jesus commanded. And here it goes to the Samaritans. Now let, me, let me tell you about, uh, a little bit about the Samaritans. Let's think about them. This uh, apparently is Samaritan month at Grace. Last Sunday, uh, Pastor Scott unfolded the parable of the Good Samaritan. Many, many people in the world know the parable of the Good Samaritan. If it weren't for that story, they wouldn't know what a Samaritan was or how to find one. Uh, I want you to know about the story of the Samaritans and where they come from because I want you to understand how weighty a command this is that Jesus is giving them for them to go to the Samaritans with the gospel. The racial issues in our country are deep and complicated. They were deep and complicated in this story too. Now, the Samaritans, who are they? The Samaritans are an ethnically mixed group of people. Uh, Forgive me for just a moment, but you know, in in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 12, the story of the Old Testament begins to focus on Abraham. Abraham, who was called by God. God said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to bless the world through you and your family. And the story of the Old Testament is the story of Abraham. He has many descendants. They become uh, eventually a nation. It's the nation of Israel that Moses rescues from slavery in Egypt. They go into the promised land under Joshua, and uh, they have kings, Saul, David, Solomon. And after Solomon, this nation of Israel divides into two parts. 
The northern part, they keep the name Israel. And the southern part becomes Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel lasts about 200 years on its own until the Assyrians come and invade and uh, conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And what the Assyrians did, those ancient peoples, in order to break down the ethnic and religious solidarity of people that they conquered, they deported half of them or so, a portion of them, and took them away, and they brought in uh, other conquered peoples to live in that region. And eventually what happened is the Jews that remained in Israel, the Israelites that remained there, intermarried with some of those that the Assyrians brought in. And the descendants of those intermarriages are called Samaritans. That's where the Samaritans come from. There actually are still a group of Samaritans in the world today. There's about a thousand of them, I believe, and they live in the region where Jesus talked to the woman at the well. They don't live that far away from there. So the Samaritans are ethnically mixed people. They're, they're not Jews. They're not really Jews. And they're religious heretics, too, as far as the Jews were concerned, because the Samaritans only used the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they don't read the Psalms, and they don't read the Proverbs, and they don't read the Prophets. They only use the first five books of the Bible. When Jesus commanded his disciples to go and preach to the Samaritans, he was asking them to cross a deep, long-standing, emotionally charged, historically solidified border. You should feel the weight of that command. You, it should make a difference to you. It, that command should matter more to you than what your parents taught you about racial and ethnic boundaries. It should matter more to you, it should be more formative than what you read on the news, or see on the news, or read on your favorite website. Followers of Jesus Christ cross boundaries that people put in place. We're going to talk about why in in just a minute. Let's get back to the story here, though, shall we? So Philip goes and he preaches in Samaria and many people believe. And Luke focuses our attention on one man, a man whose name is Simon. Uh, He could have focused his attention on another of the Samaritans, but Simon is the one that we learn about here. And the text says that he was a sorcerer who amazed all the people of Samaria. That's in verse 9. And boy, I have questions about that. What does this mean? Was, was Simon some sort of a hustler who had special pockets up his sleeves and could produce rabbits and doves? Was Simon perhaps somehow uh, demonically influenced so that he could do pseudo-miracles? If, there's several places in the book of Acts where the good news of Jesus Christ encounters some of the ancient magical religions. Maybe this is the first time. Maybe uh, Simon just was really good at making himself appear mystical and religious. There are people like that today. In fact, if you really wanted to, I don't recommend it, you could go out on Route 30 today and get your palm read by an astrologist who has the office across from the Rockvale outlets. If the line's too long at Bass, just go, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Maybe Simon was like that. I don't know. Uh, What I do know is that he was a self-promoter. He boasted that he was someone great. 
And he apparently was good at it because everybody knew him and everybody had been amazed by him. And everybody said, this Simon, there's something divine about him. He's great. They were amazed by him. Now, Philip preached and many people believed. And the text says that even Simon believed. Now, you know the end of the story. We read it a few minutes ago. What does the text mean when it says that Simon believed? What did he believe? To what extent did he believe? How did he, he believe? H- had he been genuinely converted? Was it real faith in Jesus as Savior? Or was it just interest in Philip's miracles? I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that John, uh, that actually Jesus himself, was skeptical of people who respond only because of the miracles. Look at, I wrote on the sheet in your bulletin if you want. Look at what John 2.23 says. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. There is a type of belief that responds only to miracles or impressive outward signs, and that's not genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. This is one of the things that... um, I have to be concerned about and the elders are concerned about as part of our shepherding ministry in the congregation. There are all kinds of people at all kinds of places in their spiritual lives who are part of our church. And it's possible, the New Testament certainly seems to suggest that this is true, that there are people who are just interested They like the church because they like the music or they like the church because of the Christmas Eve service that we have or they like the church because it's a friendly place or a happy place, but they don't like the church because of Jesus. It's possible there's people in the church like that and maybe Simon is coming because he's interested. I don't know about Simon's faith, but I do know that he's become a groupie. Uh, He followed Philip everywhere astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now, in verse 13, when it says he was astonished, that's the same word that's translated amazed back there about Simon. And Luke is trying to, with his vocabulary, teach us a very important lesson. The lesson that, that Luke is trying to get at here, he, he is, he's telling us that the amazer, the one who amazed everybody, is now amazed. Uh, The one who has impressed and everybody thinks is divine now himself is astonished at the supernatural work that Philip did. Nothing that Simon could do or pretended to do could even compare with what Philip did. And now he is amazed at what Philip is doing. There's no sense of competition here at all between Simon and Philip. Philip, uh, Simon is capitulating completely to Philip. Do you remember several years ago, uh, they, they appear every now and then, those wonderful commercials for McDonald's between uh, Michael Jordan and Larry Bird. Do you remember those commercials? Uh, Larry Bird is, is shooting baskets He's in an in arena, and Michael Jordan walks in with a bag from McDonald's with Big Mac and fries, and, and they decide that they're going to play for it. And the, the winner has to make the, uh, the winner gets to eat the sandwich in front of the loser. First one to miss a shot loses. 
whole series of commercials where they try amazing shots from behind the backboard and bouncing off of the, the uh, scoreboard and, and uh, amazing shots that they make. There's no sense of, of that competition here in this, this passage. There's no sense in which Simon is saying, Oh, watch me, I can do this. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. It's not happening at all in this, this passage. Simon is just amazed. He capitulates completely to Philip. And what we find in this story is one of the themes of the book of Acts. The power of the good news is that it is superior to anything else. There's no other philosophy, there's no other religion, there's no other creed, there's no other system, there's no other worldview that is superior to the message that Jesus is the crucified, resurrected, ascended Savior. That message is more powerful than anything else. Now, of course, that sounds like an intolerant claim. It sounds very intolerant to say that, that, that what we believe is better and superior to what anybody else believes. I understand that that sounds intolerant. I'm going to show you why we don't hold it that way in our better moments. Uh, Think, though, with me about the consistency of saying that. We believe that this is God's word. We believe that this is the Bible that came from the God, the one God who actually exists. And all other gods are just pretenders that do not exist. And this is the word from the one God. Of course, we would believe that it is superior to everything else that has ever been written or spoken or thought of by men. And we further believe that no matter what we're talking about, no matter what it is, whether it be astrophysics or fashion modeling or marriage, if what you say about that is deeply rooted in Scripture, then it is superior. Now, the Bible doesn't have a lot on astrophysics and fashion modeling. But when it speaks, when, when you find principles or ideas that are deeply rooted in Scripture and you apply it to those things, it is a superior message. The worldview, the coherent system that arises from this book is able to outthink the thinkers, outphilosophize the philosophizers, and outamaze the amazers. We really do believe that it is better. Now we started today thinking about race and ethnicity. Let's go a little bit further here. We believe that what the Bible says about race is superior to any other view about race and ethnicity in the world. The Bible tells us that human beings are created in God's image, and that means that all human beings, regardless of their skin color or facial features or cultural preferences, are endued with inherent dignity. And what's more than that, the glory of God is on display in our culture, cultural and our ethnic diversity. At the end of the age, people from every tribe and nation and tongue are going to be before Jesus' throne proclaiming his excellency. We're going to sing that at the end of the service. Uh, make a tapestry of lavish grace from every uh, people and race. We'll sing that at the end of the service today. And the Bible tells us that though everybody has in, in, within them this inherent dignity being made in God's image, the Bible also tells us why we fail to live out this orientation of recognizing everyone's inherent dignity. 
The Bible tells us where racism comes from. It comes from our sin, our rebellion against God. Our rebellion vertically against God introduces all kinds of horizontal hostility in this world. Maybe you experience that in your family, right? Some of you had a great week uh, visiting with your family and seeing them. Some of you... Does it work this way in your family? There's hostility between you or one of your siblings and, and, and one of your parents. Vertical relationship. And doesn't it, doesn't it ruin everything else with your sisters and brothers, with your nieces and nephews? That happen, does that happen in your family? Our rebellion against God has poisoned our relationships with one another. And we don't treat people with the dignity that they deserve because they're image bearers. The Bible's teaching about sin enables us to confess our individual attitudes and our individual prejudices. And it also enables us, it's big enough to speak about the infections corporately and systemically. The Bible's teaching about our creation in God's image and our fallenness I think is a superior viewpoint on race. It's better than anything else that anybody else is saying about ethnicity. It's certainly better than naturalistic explanations, isn't it? According to naturalistic explanations, where do racial differences come from? Well, they come from uh, uh, evolutionary paths. Natural selection has made us different. It's survival of the fittest. And that is the philosophy that drove some of the most heinous crimes of the 20th century. I hope, I hope that you hate, you should. I hope that you hate Nazism and apartheid and Jim Crow laws. You should hate those things. But I wonder, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I wonder if your understanding of where those racial differences come from, I wonder if it's strong enough to support your hatred of those things. I wonder if how you treat people is supported by your underlying beliefs about why we're different. The Bible tells us, actually, furthermore, that we move toward one another by the story of Jesus Christ. He is the one who came from the outside. And he's the one who crossed the boundary separating human beings from God himself. He became one of us. He took on our sin, the sin of all of us, and he died for us on the cross. He rose again, and he offers life and forgiveness to anyone who will receive it by turning to him and trusting in him. Jesus is the one who has both crossed boundaries and been put down by him. John says he came to his own, and his own did not receive him. They rejected him. And it's because of him, he who who experienced ultimate prejudice and ultimate rejection, that we all, sinful though we be, can move toward one another. Now, we live in Lancaster County, don't we? Most of us. And uh, Lancaster County is changing dramatically, especially in the city. But this is not where, where many of us live in the southern part of the county. is not a racially uh, diverse area. Manor Township is about 95% Caucasian. Um, we don't have grand opportunities on a daily basis to pursue racial reconciliation. Your attitude about race and ethnicity actually is most evident in what you think every day and say and how you pray about what you see and hear in the news and what you post on Facebook about it. 
I wonder how gospel-shaped what you say and think and pray is. Because what the Bible says about race and ethnicity is superior to every other view. That's its power. I have, in the last few weeks, read a, a tremendous amount and seen a fair amount of material on race in America. And I have discovered I am neither expert enough nor wise enough to sort through all of the issues. There's, there's uh, 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 people I hear offering various opinions. There are those who want to talk about the racial problem as if it rests primarily within the African-American community itself. The, the main reason that is that there's poverty or crime within the inner cities is because of inherent problems there. Irresponsibility and bitterness and blame shifting. And at the other end of the spectrum, there are those who say the problem is systemic. It's, it's ingrained systemic racism within the country itself that manifests itself in courts and politics. I wonder where you are on, on this spectrum, if you had to place yourself somewhere. I don't have the wisdom to tell you where the right place to be is. And actually, I don't think I have the authority as a pastor in the church to tell you where the right place to be is. Um, I've read articles and, and, and um, listened to lectures by, by African-American brothers and sisters who are in both, both and all, all along the spectrum, and, and Caucasians who are all along the spectrum. I, I don't know. But I, I wonder, though, uh, most of you struggle with this, perhaps you do. And I wonder how you think about it in this racially homogenous situation. You might be tempted to respond. You might be tempted to respond this way. You look at the rioting and the looting and you say to yourself, that is stupid. And it is stupid. Looting is a foolish, nonsensical way to respond to the death of Michael Brown. Or you think about the fatherlessness that's endemic in the African-American population. 70% of African-American children grow up in homes where there is no father present. That's irresponsible. Or you read statistics that 80% of African-American pregnancies in the United States end in abortion. And you think to yourself, those people. And I ask you this morning, because I think the Bible asks you, how does the gospel teach us to respond to people who are so angry, whether justified or not in their anger, that they burn their own houses down? What did Jesus do when he met someone who was so out of control that he used to cut himself with stones and break chains and live in the tombs? How does the gospel respond, teach us to respond in situations that are broken so much that fatherlessness is the norm? What did Jesus do when he met someone who was living with a man and she had had five husbands before? What did he do? Will you not have any compassion on them? Will you not at least consider how the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms minds and hearts and lives, people who apparently are walking in callousness that murdering the unborn four out of five times makes sense to them. 
Will he not consider at least for a moment how talking about the African-American section of our society as if they're more foolish or less industrious or less capable or more inclined to crime, as if we white Americans have no special problems like that. Will you recognize that as the self-righteous anti-gospel position that it is? If you see someone, if you walk down the street and you see someone of a different race or ethnicity, and what you think chiefly and primarily dominating your mind is a stereotype. They should learn to speak English. wonder if they're here legally. I hope they aren't going to take my wallet. If that's the primary thought in your mind, and that's all you post about, and it's all you think about, and you will not see that person as someone who needs to hear the gospel, you are failing in our call to cross boundaries for Christ's sake. We believe that what the Bible says about race and ethnicity is superior. Let's champion what it says and how we think and speak and pray about this issue. Now, what keeps us from holding that arrogantly? want to move on here from the power of the goodness of the news about Jesus Christ to the goodness of the good news about Jesus Christ. Let's talk about what happens here in the second part of the story. The, the text tells us that the apostles, or that the Samaritans, uh, well, the text tells us that the apostles had heard that the Samaritans, verse 14, accepted the word of God. That seems in Acts to be a technical term for the spread of the gospel across ethnic boundaries. They accepted it. So Peter and John go down to investigate. Now, why do they go down to investigate? Philip is doing what Jesus has commanded. And this is a major turning point in the book of Acts. And it's, it's for the unity of, the, of the, the, gospel, the church that this story develops as, as it does. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, Acts itself is a book of transition. Things happen in the book of Acts that are not normal like the delaying of the coming of the Spirit on believers. Paul tells us that when you trust Christ as your Savior, you are baptized by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit takes up residency in you. But here there is a delay. Now, why is there a delay? I think it's for the unity of the church. It's so that everyone will know that what's happening in Samaria is an actual work of God, and that he wants the gospel to go to the Samaritans, it's God's special appointed representatives who come and witness and see God's Holy Spirit coming upon the Samaritans. The transitional period, it's validating Philip's work, it's validating God's desire that the gospel go to the Samaritans, and it's going to maintain the unity of the church. Actually, Peter was present to see the Spirit come on Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. He's that key witness. In the book of Acts. Now Simon sees what happens and he wants this power. He wants the ability to lay his hands on people and have the spirit come. And he offers to pay for it. And he receives back one of the most violent words in the New Testament. One of the most violent condemnations. It doesn't quite have the same nuance in our culture. But Peter basically looks at him and says, to hell with you and your money. It's a very strong condemnation. Verse 20 is, is key here. 
May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. We have to think about that in just a minute. But what happened to Simon? I don't know what happened to Simon. The text isn't very hopeful in what it describes of Simon. Peter told them to pray for his soul. Repentance is still possible for you, Simon. You need to turn. But Simon seems to refuse. He doesn't pray for himself. And though he says, Peter, you pray for me, please. Is he unwilling to pray or does he feel unable to pray? I, I don't know. But verse 20 is the verse that is to keep us from being arrogant people. We believe that the gospel message is superior to all other messages, but what keeps us from being arrogant people about that is that it is a gift from God, and we recognize that. It's a gift from God. It's not for sale. The gospel and the mercy and the forgiveness contained in that message is not something you can earn. It's not something you can achieve. It's not something you deserve. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not because you are superior, but it's because the grace of God is superior. Simon does not understand this. You are not that awesome. God is that awesome. He saves someone like you. Notice again here how the book of Acts unfolds. The Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. There's thousands of Jews in Jerusalem that are converted. Then they seem to turn and reject the gospel. And now the gospel goes to Samaritans and Gentiles. And this story is here to tell you, verse 20 is here to, to say to you, if you're a Gentile and you're a follower of Jesus, don't think that you're a follower of Jesus because you're smarter than the Jews who would not recognize Jesus. It's the gift of God. It doesn't come with money. It doesn't come with talent. It doesn't come with good looks. You're not a follower of Jesus Christ because you're good enough or wise enough or nice enough or cute enough or white enough to receive this grace. You did not earn it. You receive it. Have you received God's grace? We're in a phase in our, in our house where superheroes play a prominent role. Uh, Batman and Spider-Man and the Avengers. Um, I hope my children are actually learning all the lessons that they're supposed to learn from their superheroes. They watch them on the computer. It's the computer's in the kitchen in a prominent place. And sometimes when I'm in the kitchen uh, doing something, taking out the garbage or taking care of some dishes, um, I see on the screen what's happening. Um, little children... Are, are being caught as they fall out of buildings 10 stories high. And I see on the screen hostages being rescued from would-be bank robbers. I see that villains are being arrested, and, and uh, uh, my children love to watch these heroes do their work. And as I, I see, whatever happens on the screen, I never see self-congratulations on the part of one of the, the people who is rescued. No falling child has ever said to Spider-Man, boy, I'm glad I was smart enough to fall today in your neighborhood. No hostage ever says to Batman, you came for me first because I'm cuter than everybody else, aren't you? Didn't, didn't you? It's always, always about the hero and his strength and his ingenuity, his perseverance, his wisdom, his skill. That's the same with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about us and being smart enough to be in the right place or being wise enough to make the right choice or being good enough to deserve the mercy. 
It's always about the hero, Jesus Christ. The same truth applies to you regardless of the color of your skin. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we come before you this morning and we confess to you that um, we have, have struggled at times as we think about racial and ethnic differences. We are among those who are uh, guilty of judging people by stereotypes and, and, and considering them chiefly through the lens of, of their problems and struggles and foibles and irresponsibilities and sins. Lord Jesus, we confess to you that your plan is better than our plan. Your plan that the gospel would cross boundaries and would unite us together is better than our uh, division along racial and ethnic boundaries. Lord, we confess to you that um, we have not the wisdom or the strength to fix what we see demonstrated in Ferguson, Missouri, but we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you do. That Someday you're going to come back and you're going to make everything right and everything will be just and good and, and there will be joy and peace. You'll... you'll uh, Put down self-righteous people. You'll rebuke angry people. Uh, you'll um, rescue compassionless people. Lord Jesus, you are the one that we need to rescue us. And I pray that you would begin by doing it in our minds and our hearts as we think about people who look differently than we do and who act differently than we would. Lord Jesus, we confess that your plan is better than our plan. We pray that you would enable us by your grace to embrace this call that we have to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a tremendous privilege. Thank you for Philip and his courage. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.